That's the bridge opening for a ship to go through. I'm standing under a bridge with Dr. Joshua Lewis. We're standing right beside the St. Claude Bridge, the kind of rusty bridge that split between the upper and lower ninth wards. Josh is the science director at the Bywater Institute at Tulane University. So we're actually standing uh, right on the bank of the Mississippi River uh, where the industrial canal was cut uh, through New Orleans. It's one of the places where you can really see the age of uh, the industrial canal because you can look at some of this original infrastructure like the St. Claude Bridge. Which was built a hundred years ago to cross the industrial canal. And it was a, a sort of seen as a pretty significant engineering achievement at the time of its completion in the early 1920s. We've been thinking about this idea of New Orleans versus nature, looking at 19th century levee breaches, 20th century drainage systems, and the industrial canal is in a lot of ways the mother of this NOLA versus nature theme. In fact, the Industrial Canal was somewhat inspired by the mother of the global version of this human-verse-nature theme, the Panama Canal. The ultimate example of people changing the landscape to make it how they want it. The same engineering group who worked on the Panama Canal was involved in the Industrial Canal. The canal seemed to symbolize this idea that we were overcoming nature and bettering all of mankind. This is Tripod, New Orleans at 300. I'm Lane Captain Levinson. The port made a, a major gamble with the construction of the Industrial Canal. This risky business started because the city, the port, investors, they yearned for a shortcut. It was never seen as just a canal to connect the river and the lake. It was to connect the lake to the ocean. In the 1820s, city officials and the Port of New Orleans started planning a way that ships could bypass the windy, scenic route that is the Mississippi River and create a faster route for ships to get to Lake Pontchartrain and then access the Gulf of Mexico. That was the main drive to build the canal. And there was another thing. When you cut an artificial waterway through the city, you get more waterfront property. And on that property, businesses could do things they weren't allowed to do on the Mississippi. You could lease or sell land on the Industrial Canal to private companies to build industries, et cetera. And the way that the state constitution was written up at the time, uh, you couldn't do that on the river. By the early 1900s, that's how this project was marketed to the city. A canal would create more waterfront property, which would create more commercial shipping businesses, which would strengthen the New Orleans port. But wait. There's more. Yeah, well, the canal wasn't wasn't described as just a, a, a smart land project or even purely, you know, as a good thing for the port. Nathaniel Rich is a writer in New Orleans. His third novel, King Zeno, takes place in New Orleans in 1918, the year construction on the canal began. It was, it was presented as a kind of gut check about the identity of the city and, of course, with that, the identity of New Orleanians politicians, the dock board, the people who were calling for this canal made appeals to the city basically saying this is how we can make New Orleans great again. You know, this is our big chance saying what kind of city do you want to have here? You know, do we want to be the second rate backwater or do we want to reclaim our proper position at the heart of American military and economic life? Nathaniel says the end of World War I was a deeply patriotic and progress-minded time. It's a point at which the city feels like it's on the cusp of 
rediscovering its historical place as the leading American port city and one of the leading economic centers of the country. It's a time to advance through this waterway, this shortcut. The city just had to figure out where to cut. People were eyeing a stretch of land that ran the shortest distance from the river to the lake. It was in the Ninth Ward. The Ninth Ward officially became part of the city in 1852, when free people of color and recent immigrants who couldn't afford to live on higher ground started moving in, working class. By the early 1900s, it was still mostly rural, dotted with small shotgun houses, and largely neglected by the modernizing city uptown. It had this kind of bucolic feel, but it got swampier and swampier the closer you got to the lake. This is where city planners scoping out the site for the canal found that stretch of land. They thought it was perfect, except for one problem. The Ursuline convent was also in the Ninth Ward. Standing in the way of exactly where the city wanted to put their canal were 52 cloistered nuns. You're listening to Tripod, New Orleans at 300. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson. This wasn't the sisters' first rodeo when it came to being in the city's way. When the Ursulines got here in the 1730s, they set up shop in the French Quarter. But as the footprint of the quarter grew, the city started building roads that cut through the property of the convent. The nuns were not happy. So they thought, okay, where can we go so that nobody will bother us again? The sisters found this place, and it was far enough removed from the city. Sister Rosemary Maiman is an archivist at the Ursuline Convent. They wanted something out of everybody's way. So in the 1820s, they leave Charter Street in the quarter, and they move to Dauphine Street in the Ninth Ward. But then... Port Board buys Ursuline Tract. Sister Rosemary is reading me an old newspaper clipping. A large transaction connected with the Industrial Canal was concluded Thursday when the Board of Port Commissioners paid the Ursuline nuns for the Ursuline Tract through which the canal will reach the river. The price was $500,000. One of the reasons the nuns agreed to sell their land and move their massive convent uptown is that they didn't want to be around during construction, which they knew could take years. And it wasn't the noise they were worried about. Lee Loomis is another archivist for the Archdiocese of New Orleans. You've now got shipping, longshoremen. You've got people that the sisters did not want to come into contact with. So they're looking at this whole thing and seeing in the next five years, this is not going to go well for us. So let's do what we need to do for ourselves and move. Also, the nuns had been in the Ninth Ward for 100 years and had watched the Mississippi River creep closer and closer towards their property. The land was eroding. They worried about their future being so close to the river down there anyway. So they sold the land, and on a hot September morning in 1912, 52 cloistered nuns boarded a streetcar and left the Ninth Ward behind. And some of them had never been on an electric car, nor had they seen an electric car before. Um, Some of them had never left the convent since they had entered the convent into the cloistered life. This was such a big deal for them that they received a special streetcar outfitted just for this trip with window shades that the sisters could pull down to keep them separated, sort of, from the outside world. Sister Lucy Moore was on that streetcar. 
This is Sister Lou. All right. Sister Rosemary found an old recording of Sister Lucy being interviewed about the day she and the sisters left the Ninth Ward. Give us the date. Oh, September the 7th, 1912. Community departure from the old convent. We got up at 4.30. The usual time. Huh? The usual time. The usual time, yes, the usual time. And we had to be there at 9 o'clock. 9 o'clock sharp. And we got here about 10.30. It took an hour and a half in a streetcar. Archivist Lee Loomis. So the city has displaced them about every hundred years. They go, oh, gee, we think we need your land. Let's cut through it, first by road and this time by waterway. So with the Ursulines out of the way by 1912, the city could move forward with their plans. In 1914, the Louisiana legislature passed an act authorizing the canal. A lot of people were really excited about this. Juliet Landfair is a historian who grew up in New Orleans. Well, you got to ask yourself, who are the people they're talking about who support this, right? She says in 1914, Jim Crow is clamping down in the city. Voting rights are being taken away through poll taxes and literacy tests. Plus, women still can't vote. So who's being represented in the Louisiana legislature that's approving this act that's um, allowing the construction of the Industrial Canal? Not to say there wasn't a lot of support for it. There was. Among very, very important white men uh, with a lot of money and a lot of political clout. City officials, port commissioners, investors from Hibernia Bank. And with the nuns gone, they now claim that the Ninth Ward was virtually uninhabited. One problem. There were thousands of people living in the Ninth Ward at this time. The 1910 census shows over 5,000 people living in the Lower Ninth Ward and tens of thousands in the Upper Ninth. There was a sense of, God, who would ever live out there? And that, that has persisted to this day, right? People who didn't live there don't understand what the community was like there. You know, this is the people who are forgotten and they're just in, rendered invisible. Turns out, thousands of folks did live in the Ninth Ward in 1918. The cheaper land made it affordable for black families and European immigrants to buy their first homes on the edge of the city. They built cottages out of the nearby cypress swamps. They had fenced-in yards, livestock. It was like farmland. They grew vegetables and things like that. Mary Claire Hogan's family is from the Holy Cross neighborhood. She's talking on the phone where she now lives in Madison, Mississippi, roughly 200 miles away from New Orleans, where she used to live until Hurricane Katrina. Okay, my mother lived uh, below the Industrial Canal on Jordan Avenue before the canal was built. Her mother's name was Claire Quinn. And my grandfather was James I. Quinn, and he was the owner of the property on Jordan Avenue. Then they took over the property. The federal government. On eminent domain to build the industrial canal. Mary Claire's family was one of the few that lived in the actual footprint of the canal. They were forced to take a buyout. You have to settle with whatever they give you because they've taken it anyway, you know. My mother said, the grandfather said, this is what America is. They had 30 days to leave. You're listening to Tripod, New Orleans at 300. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson.
So the canal meant that people like Mary Claire's family were displaced. But then this massive construction site suddenly sprouts between two fairly dense neighborhoods. That's Dr. Josh Lewis of Tulane University. The two fairly dense neighborhoods are the Upper and Lower Ninth Ward. And both the Upper and Lower Ninth Ward neighborhood associations opposed the canal altogether. For starters, they were wondering, how is transportation going to work? From the very start, there were organized groups raising concerns about the way that the project was unfolding, asking questions about how they were going to effectively get back and forth uh, over the canal. And Josh says this area already felt neglected, even before the canal started. When it came to infrastructure investments, uh, when it came to drainage service, when it came to sanitation, when it came to road work, when it came to streetcar service. Pretty much every civic concern. Folks here had a real, you know, for legitimate reasons, had a sense that they were kind of on the outs and, and on the margins of New Orleans society. This sense was only deeper ingrained when, despite the opposition, the project broke ground on June 6, 1918. And suddenly, the Ninth Ward had buku problems. And those centered mainly around drainage and sewage service. So for more or less two years, and you can imagine what this would be like in the New Orleans summer, uh, the sewer system in this part of the Upper Ninth Ward actually operated like a gigantic septic tank because it had nowhere outlet, had nowhere to go. So every time you had heavy, heavy rainfall, the sewer system would fill up with water and overflow and cause all kinds of nasty problems. The disruption wasn't just sanitary or social or political. It was environmental. I mean, when you're trying to completely reroute the natural landscape and dig 70 feet straight down into the ground, you're going to have some issues. They say at the time that was the, the deepest kind of large excavation that had been made in the Mississippi Delta at that point. When construction began, the commissioners of the canal announced the project as, quote, a monument to the power of man over the forces of nature and to the progress of a community that will not say die. Yeah, intense. But those forces of nature put up quite the fight. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to rumble! Round one in the ring. The laborers versus the swamps. First of all, you have to cut all those trees down. Out by the lake, the Ninth Ward was covered in thick cypress swamp. So they clear those to access the land underneath. But what they quickly found is that it wasn't just the trees on the surface that they had to contend with. It was several layers of cypress forests that were below ground. Round two, the laborers versus the underground forests. Wait, what? Right, so year by year by year, century by century, everything's sinking, but you're also getting you know, new layers of land being dumped on top of that uh, over and over and over again. So it's like... There's a layer of salt marsh. There's a barrier island. There's a forest. Oh, there's another forest. And beneath all that, liquefied sand. It's sort of like quicksand. Knockout. Marshes. Poisonous marsh gases, insects, islands, forests, quicksand. This is what had to be conquered to dredge the canal. Machinery split open and got sucked into the ground while blades were still wildly spinning. Men clutched onto the ditch for dear life. 
I said to Josh, it's almost like every layer was saying, maybe you shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> you know, like, isn't this hard? <laughs> exactly, yeah. The landscape itself put up a pretty big fight to the completion of the project. But humans were determined to win. Midway through construction, here's how the New Orleans item described the digging process. Man every day is surpassing nature. He turns rivers from their course and mingles oceans. If a mountain is in his way, he obliterates it. In New Orleans, man has measured strength with nature and conquered. He has joined the river and lake, building gargantuan foundations for his work on the quicksands themselves. The canal took five years to complete, and nearly 100 years later, it's still here. Today, we see a host of long-term impacts from this enormous infrastructure project. Connecting the river to the lake and out to the gulf ushered in saltwater intrusion, which killed off the cypress forests, some of our best natural defense systems against flooding. And for Josh Lewis, that's what the legacy of the canal comes down to. It can almost look a bit silly now. I mean, considering, you know, the flood risk in particular that the Industrial Canal has brought into this part of the city, that alone would seem to sort of negate any value that is there. Josh says that around 1980, the port said, well, this vision, this dream that we had, that the Industrial Canal was going to be this silver bullet that solves all our problems, didn't really work out that way. It didn't really solve any of them. Historian Juliet Landfair agrees with Josh. She sees the canal as responsible for the devastation the Lower Ninth Ward faced in both Hurricane Betsy and Katrina. We know that the storm surge came up through um, the intercoastal waterways and, and into the city and down the Industrial Canal, the collapse of the flood wall. That is because of the Industrial Canal. That would not have happened before the Industrial Canals. And, and people literally lost their lives in both of those hurricanes. A neighborhood that was already experiencing neglect became that much more isolated. Juliet says the people that moved out to the Ninth Ward before the canal, they never thought they'd be disconnected from the city in such a physical way. Oh, absolutely not. Josh and I sat in his truck near the canal right off Poland Avenue. We talked about how the Army Corps is currently planning to replace, relocate, and lengthen the Industrial Canal Lock, which Josh says is still working just fine. In fact, its main components were just replaced in 2017. The Corps says this is necessary to once again allow bigger boats to move through the canal faster. This would take more than 10 years to complete and cost roughly $900 million. The St. Claude and Claiborne bridges will often be impassable during this time. In fact, the St. Claude bridge will have to be replaced altogether. These are not only integral for thousands of people's commutes, it's their evacuation route. Some people might have to be displaced during this decade-long construction period, just like Mary Claire Hogan's family was 100 years ago. And just like 100 years ago, residents oppose this plan. They question the project's use of resources and how this replacement lock will affect flood protection. Just as a type of thought experiment, I asked Josh, What do you think this whole area could be like if that had not happened? Well, on the one hand, I think you would have dramatically lower flooding risk 
throughout uh, this whole area. You'd probably still have more infrastructure on the river. You'd have a little bit more of a working riverfront, but you'd have a less divided and likely, honestly, less segregated eastern side of the city in terms of class um, and race. It takes on several different dimensions, but all of them are in some way related to the presence of these canals. So that's a few thoughts on it. Tripod is a production of WWNO New Orleans Public Radio in collaboration with the Historic New Orleans Collection and the Midlow Center for New Orleans Studies at UNO. Special thanks to Evan Christopher for the opening theme music, to the entire Tripod Editorial Committee, and to our Tripod Editor, Eve Abrams. Catch Tripod on the air Thursdays during Morning Edition and again on Mondays during All Things Considered. And you can listen to Tripod anytime you want by subscribing to the podcast. Also, this is the finale of our NOLA versus Nature series. So if you missed the other episodes, Sauvé's Crevasse, Baldwin Wood and the Woods Group Pump, those are all on the podcast. So listen to those two and then listen to the Industrial Canal episode in its entirety. Subscribe, rate, review. Thank you. Also, follow us on social media at Tripod Nola on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. That series is over, but we're moving full force ahead with new episodes into the tricentennial year. So stick with us. And finally, I want to thank my colleague at WWNO, Jess Clark, for the amazing voiceover work on this episode. You might not have even been able to tell that there was any voiceover work, but uh, since she's still here in the studio, I want to say I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson. And I'm Jess Clark. And I'll tripod you later. Is that okay? <laughs> okay. <It's> perfect. Okay. <laughs> Yay! Teamwork. <laughs> <laughs>